In this edition of AML Conversations, we dig deep into how prosecutors in the Commonwealth of Virginia get trained on many areas of law, including financial crime. Vice Chairman John Byrne's guest, Elliot Casey, a former prosecutor himself, now trains law enforcement officials, prosecutors, and investors alike on such disparate issues like digital evidence, forfeiture, and complex financial crime. Casey also shares his views on the Civil Safe Harbor, an extremely useful protection for financial institutions. Now sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. Well, Elliot, thanks for joining me today. A couple things, um, a couple reasons why I wanted to talk to you. One was I was very interested in an article that you wrote for ACAMS today back in the uh, December February edition on the Civil Safe Harbor, which is near and dear to me because I, in a previous life, was involved in helping craft that back in the 90s and always felt that we generally got it right, but that there is some confusion, particularly recently with some court cases. I want to, I want to talk not so much about the cases, but your practical advice, both in the article regarding um, using the safe harbor correctly and for those that are listening, our AML community knows this full well, and that is the safe harbor is a broad-based protection for financial institutions that report suspicious activity either on a required form of suspicious activity report or voluntarily. So both of those uh, areas of coverage are really important for your world, and that is you work with prosecutors and law enforcement. So with, with that as a backdrop, I first want to hear about the, um, the training and the organization that you're involved in. because it's And tell me how um, unique it is or is not compared with other states, because you do a lot of training outside, the, uh, outside the, the state of Virginia as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. Um, so I work for an agency in Virginia that's called the Commonwealth Attorneys Services Council. And we're a, a small state agency that I think most people in the state don't know exists. When I go to statewide meetings, they're sometimes shocked that we exist. We are an agency of just five lawyers and two uh, administrative staff that train all of the prosecutors in Virginia. So we provide Virginia prosecutors. There's 120 elected Commonwealth attorneys throughout Virginia, and each office has their own staff. Some of them are just an elected Commonwealth attorney, and that's all there is, and some of them have in as many as 40 or um, 45 lawyers in their office. We provide all of them with training statewide. We offer big conferences and small conferences. We train them and everything a prosecutor would need to know from violent crime to um, sexual assault cases to basic DUI and uh, that sort of thing and relevant to what we're talking about today, uh, investigations of financial crime. So the training, though, is on, is it on process? Is, is it, describe the type of training. So obviously you're yeah. not, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, you're yeah. not training them on how to investigate a sex crime case, but you're talking to them about uh, utilization of what? Well, that's a great question. So actually, in some cases, we are talking about investigations okay. because, for example, the sex crime training we, we offer, we have them come in as a team with their sex crime investigator when we teach narcotics investigations, we have them come in as a team with their, um, uh, with their narcotics investigator, and then they sit down together, and then we teach them together side by side. Uh, because as a prosecutor, you know, obviously most of what you're doing is in court, or frankly, before you go to court, it's a lot of you know, paperwork and you know, preparation and so on. But in the big cases, the standing cases, 
you're often working side by side with the investigator building the case because the, the investigator wants to know what do you need to move this case forward. Um, and when I was a prosecutor, and I, I prosecuted for 15 years in Virginia, I prosecuted in Northern Virginia in an urban area and I prosecuted in, in uh, Central Virginia in a more rural area. And in both cases, I found myself in financial cases just as much as violent cases, working alongside the, the, the investigators. You know, we didn't leave our office. We, you know, kept our hands dirty, hands clean and, sure. you know, wore a tie to work every day and went to an office. But we, we sat together trying to figure out what the next step is and where do we need to go and what's the next piece of evidence that we need and, um, you know, what search warrant or subpoena do we need. Uh, so we, that's a lot of times when we're training prosecutors, we're teaching them that material. But just as much that, also courtroom, you know, rules for the courtroom or um, new cases. Uh, every week I provide updates. So you are training them. So if I'm uh, a, a new prosecutor or mm -hmm. work for the Commonwealth, uh, particular Commonwealth mm -hmm. Attorney's Office, and I'm a new prosecutor, mm -hmm. I'm probably not an expert in, mm -hmm. in sex crime and, and um, healthcare fraud and financial nope. crime. So right. you are, in fact... Uh, giving us um, soup to nuts, not just on process on how to investigate, but what the crimes are. Absolutely, that's okay. absolutely right. Because you know, you think about you know the, the average prosecutor in Virginia is starting out. They're you know 26, 27 years old. They've been to law school, and you know, as you know, in law school they teach you um, virtually nothing of actual law. I mean, that's not the way it's done you know nowadays. So you come out, and maybe you have a brief introduction to what the actual law is in Virginia when you take the bar. And suddenly you're thrown into this courtroom and you have to know, you know, all sorts of arcane rules, whether it's that, um, you know, a certificate of analysis in a DUI case is, is admissible, if, you know, admissible as to the chain of custody of the blood sample submitted to the Department of Forensic Science based upon the certificate that's on there. How would you know that if somebody didn't sit down and talk to you and tell you sure. places and talk to you about the 30 years of case law about that? And then... So somebody might learn all those basic crimes and then get assigned financial cases and think, and then to say to them, okay, now I want to tell you something about, for example, the Bank Secrecy Act. There's no way that a lawyer, especially in uh, most prosecutor's offices in Virginia, would ever learn about the Bank Secrecy Act if not from um, us or learning on their own or just going out on their own and being curious and looking things up. What, what in, uh, from financial crime and money laundering type cases, um, in the Commonwealth, mm -hmm. I I should know this, but I don't, uh, since I'm, I'm a Pennsylvania and D.C. lawyer. Mm -hmm. Does Virginia have a parallel money laundering statute? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, we didn't until recently. Okay. Uh, but we got one about, I'm trying to remember now, I think it's about 13 years ago, um, a group of uh, a lawyer and an investigator who used to be with the federal government got together, they were working for the Attorney General's office, and they designed and wrote a money laundering statute for the Commonwealth. And we got to do that looking back on all of the sort of ups and downs of the federal money laundering statute. Right. So we have one in Virginia, and uh, for example, and one of the things that we were able to sort of do is to say, uh, with SUAs, for example, as unlawful activities, is to say, you know, let's not go down this road of having 
this list where every time we change a crime, we have to change the SUA and then make this little, you know, we, we're going to monkey with a list. So we just made the SUA any felony wow. under the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia or the federal government. Or, you know, if you commit a felony somewhere and you launder the proceeds of that felony in the Commonwealth, then, then it's that's a, the felony is an SUA. That's interesting because in my previous life uh, working for the banking industry, the uh, I can remember virtually every two years there would mm -hmm. be every, since the money laundering laws were crafted in '86, mm -hmm. virtually every two years it'd be a massive crime bill. Sure, usually it was an anti-drug bill. Yeah, and in it would would always be a couple of additional predicate offenses. Mm -hmm. And yep. now there's I think at last count over to, at least to over 200. Yep, but they would have to lack of a better term, physically add mm -hmm. that statute. So it's interesting that you guys learned from that and made it pretty simple. Made it very simple. And yeah. we have a simple forfeiture provision with respect to it. Um, we have definitions that are strong. They're built in the federal definitions. We have our own definitions. Um, and then with proceeds, too. So we avoided, in Virginia, we avoided sort of that Cuellar problem. You know, you know all these proceeds issues with the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence about money laundering. We don't have those problems in Virginia because, again, we were more careful about designing that statute. I know from working closely with a, a group uh, that's pretty active in A camps, mm. and that was the Fairfax County Police, oh, yeah. had their own um, division that dealt mm. with money laundering, which I don't mm. believe exists anymore. But it it was relatively unique, from what I understand. Oh yeah. Um, so, what's been your experience in other parts of the Commonwealth regarding you know investigating money laundering type cases? It's you know it's so interesting to travel the Commonwealth because. You see, in so many different ways, a a real disparity of resources um, and a really a different way of addressing crimes in each jurisdiction. You know, we have 120 elected Commonwealth attorneys in Virginia, and they all have these different jurisdictions. You have counties like Fairfax County, like you mentioned, over a million people. It's one of the wealthiest countries in the United States, uh, counties in the United States. Um, and like you said, had a crack money laundering unit that I would stack against any right. other unit Agreed. in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I worked down in, in central Virginia and um, worked lots of times with agencies that had, I would train law enforcement agencies that maybe had, you know, 12 or 16 deputies in the entire agency. And they were, they were the law enforcement agency for their lo locality. And these were officers who had nevertheless sometimes pretty serious crime going on in their jurisdictions, pretty serious narcotics, pretty serious human trafficking. And these officers had to quickly become, all at the same time, experts in uh, forensic science, experts in DUI, and experts in money laundering, and experts in uh, electronic evidence, and all these different types of things. What's funny about that, I think, is it's easy to assume, oh, well, then they're just, you know, these guys are a bunch of, you know, hillbillies, and they don't know anything, and they don't get any training. But I came to find sometimes that the, the localities, the small localities, those guys would have learned so much from so many different areas that as an individual detective, they could do more and knew more than right. any detective from some giant agency where maybe they were, I don't want to say pigeonholed, but right. assigned to one particular unit for you know, 10 years and didn't do anything else. What's been the biggest ch um, challenge training prosecutors on financial crime? Because, you know, as lawyers, I can say safely, one of the reasons we all became lawyers is because we're not really strong in math. Math. I was the same thing. <laughs> I'd be a doctor if I could do math. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So a lot of times 
not understanding financial transactional activity can be a hindrance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you, you can you can do it, obviously. Right. But what's been the biggest challenge? You, you come into a room full of new prosecutors. You're mm-hmm. giving them BSA 101 and mm-hmm. talking about certain case law. Uh, in terms of them getting it, obviously smart folks, what's yeah. the biggest challenge? Oh, fear. Definitely yeah. fear. And um, I, I will be the first to admit I exploited that fear throughout my career as a prosecutor um, in two ways. I mean, number one was I had cases, I loved white collar and financial cases. I loved money laundering cases. I just, I, I understood them naturally and I liked them and they were fun to do. I didn't like doing the not, you know the, the you know the child sexual assault cases, the porn, you know child pornography. These cases were um, I didn't understand them. They didn't make sense to me. Why would you do that? And I didn't like. I just had I felt I felt strange prosecuting somebody who I just couldn't understand. Why would you do this? It just right. is baffling to me. And I had fellow prosecutors who loved doing those cases, who felt a real affinity for them and wanted to to, to fight on behalf of those children. So I would always, if I got one of those cases and I didn't want to do it, I'd go find one of my fellow prosecutors and I would say, hey, do you have that case you were telling me about? You don't want to do that financial case. And they'd go, oh yeah, I don't want to, you know, this is terrifying. The, it's got a banker's box full of documents and there's all these bank records and there's a detective who's coming in who's explaining all this money laundering and all this diversion of money and this layering and the way they move the money around and it's just scary to me. Would you take that case from me? And I said, sure, if you'll take this other case. <laughs> And we both smile. We both walk, walk out, and and I know both of us are walking in different directions, going sucker. But you know, I was happy because I like those cases. But it, it is genuinely intimidating to a prosec- to many prosecutors, to sit down and look at a big stack of paper because they're used to talking to live witnesses. It's genuinely intimidating to them to have to sit down with a spreadsheet because they're used to working with you know crime scene pictures. We in Virginia, most prosecutors are generalists. So they do everything from burglary to homicide to driving on suspended license and everything in between. Um, There are few, there's a handful of prosecutors who really love and pour themselves into the white collar work. But um, but that's it's that fear so and fear. intimidation. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. How um, how often do you do training in a calendar year? <laughs> That's a funny question. Yeah, a couple times because, a month, a couple oh, times yeah. a week. How does that work? Um, you know, I have a little private company, and I do training for law enforcement on the side. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe a better way to just to think about it would be to kind of talk about the last couple of weeks for me. So this morning I was teaching in Fairfax County. Um, I, I took some leave and I went to Fairfax County and taught the sex crimes uh, conference there. Um, I was at the National Cybercrime Conference as a student last week, um, but. Um, I mean, so uh, I taught at our nas- at our statewide conference uh, a few weeks ago, um, and I taught twice at that. We run programs. We probably have a couple of dozen programs we run a year, and I'm responsible for uh, maybe eight or nine of them. So I'm probably teaching somebody somewhere once every week or two. And I, I'm assuming since they're lawyers, they need continuing ed credits. So oh, yeah. what you're doing mm-hmm. uh, qualifies for that, of course. I would imagine, right? Yep, absolutely. We we strive to provide more. Which we, we look at the, the 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 yearly requirement, the CLE requirement, continually education requirement, as a floor. And our goal is to kind of provide more than that. But we provide ethics credits. Mm-hmm. You can come to us and for free, and we provide all of our training for free. Um, and we fund you so that your office shouldn't have to lose money coming to one of our trainings. So if you come to one of our training programs and you're a prosecutor in Virginia. 
we provide you with lodging, we provide you with room and board, and we don't charge for our conferences. So if you're a prosecutor in Virginia, you should be able to come to us and get all of the ethics credits and basic training credits that, um, that you need uh, statewide. Um, how do you stack up with other states? Uh, what's your experience? Are other states have a similar agency as yours, or do they always outsource something like that? It's really interesting to travel and see what different people do. You know, I taught for the Maryland State Attorneys Association. Um, I have gone down in Georgia and worked with their association, and they really run the gamut. I mean, we have made a decision that we're going to be trainers and that's going to be our job. And part of the issue is we just don't have enough money or time to do anything else other than training and provide legal support. We also ask, answer legal questions and provide, create training resources. I have created an online encyclopedia. Once a week I give updates about the law. Um, I have a podcast, you know, different kinds of things like that. Um, but um, in other states, some of the associations do lobbying. And we don't lobby because we're an executive branch agency. We report to the governor, so it doesn't make much sense for us to lobby. Um, but, um, but some states will do that. Some states actually have people who prosecute. So for example, if the prosecutor in Montgomery County has a conflict and they can't prosecute the case because the offender is a family relation, the state association will send a prosecutor there to do that. Okay. They'll do that, for example, in Georgia. We don't do that mm -hmm. here in Virginia. Um, so there's a real range. Is there a national organization that you get together once or twice a year and share best practices? Absolutely, like that? yeah. There's okay. a National Association of Prosecutor Coordinators. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm teaching at that conference in July. I'm teaching a, a class up there for them. So yeah, there's a national association as it turns out of that. And obviously your, your background is you have to understand both federal and commonwealth law uh, oh, yeah. to, to be both practical and helpful to these prosecutors, because even if the case isn't a federal case, knowing the federal statutes becomes pretty important, right? Absolutely. Although I will say, you know, everybody in my in my office right now, we're all kind of we have specialties, and so the areas of federal law that I know are areas that other people don't necessarily know, mm -hmm. and vice versa. There's stuff that they know that I have no sure not even beginnings of an understanding of. Sure. Uh, what I want to do is um, in, in, uh, switch, switch gears and talk about the safe harbor, but yeah. first, before I do that, um, mm -hmm. some of the statutes and cases you were talking about just got me to thinking, because mm -hmm. it's a, it's a international, besides a domestic problem, and mm -hmm. that's human trafficking. Sure, absolutely. Um, and, and again, going back to our, our, our colleagues in Fairfax County, mm -hmm. we, we would talk to them about uh, human trafficking on, mm -hmm. the, on the local level, and they say that there's... Uh, obviously problems right here in our own backyard of sure. Fairfax. Do you do specific training on uh, human trafficking statutes, federal, state for mm -hmm. prosecutors as well? Sure, we're doing a, we have a summer program in August that we're holding and we have a whole segment on human trafficking. It's a real thrust for us to, uh, to address with our, with our prosecutors. Um, and of course, law enforcement is very sensitive to it as well. Right. Um, so yeah, and then I also uh, have teamed up with the National uh, Immigrant Women's Assistance Project, uh, NEWAP, at the American University, to help them do training on their T visa and U visa program, which is a big part of obviously outreach for human trafficking for law enforcement as well. Through um, my continued relationship mm -hmm. with ACAMS, we've been working with uh, Polaris. Sure, it's a great organization. Yeah, Polaris has done, done a lot mm -hmm. of excellent work. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a, um, I did a recent podcast with somebody who works for a, um, uh, a software developing company called Enigma, and Enigma and ACAMS have created something called 
the acronym is STAT. It's um, Stop Trafficking, I forget mm-hmm. the entire, um, Stop Against uh, Trafficking. Uh-huh. And, but basically, it's a platform. So it's a platform that's going to be free to financial institutions and Polaris to share information. Oh, wow. Uh, like beyond a discussions forum sort sure. of thing. So posting right. typologies and case yeah. studies and all that. And that's they've had a soft launch already, but mm-hmm. basically... You don't have to pay to play, but you have to participate to play. So a financial institution can sign up for the program, mm-hmm. uh, but they have to provide some information. So it's not a commercial product. Right. Like I said, Stat is the uh-huh. Stat platform is the uh, um, uh, is the product, but it's it's a really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. And we did that because working with Polaris, mm-hmm. Annie Cannons is another mm-hmm. international organization. Mm-hmm. So I, I was curious. Again, I knew that mm-hmm. Fairfax County law enforcement was active, mm-hmm. and I sure. assumed the rest of the Commonwealth dealing mm-hmm. with human trafficking, but sure. not surprising that you folks are training on that as well. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge issue. I mean, we're all sort of becoming aware of what has you know, always already been out there, and uh, and and maybe we've, you know, I don't. I, I, there's nobody who's deliberately t- turned turned a blind eye to it. Right. But it's one of those crimes that exists under the radar by design, and um, the um, the victims, of course, of it are people who, you know, live at the margins of society and don't come forward and don't talk to the police because they're afraid of the consequences sure, of talking to police. Sure, sure. Um, yep. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that partnership that with with, with Yeah, their name, by the way, because I think mm-hmm. the Enigma, Enigma people would be mm-hmm. angry at me. It's Stand Together Against Trafficking. So oh, okay. That's what STAT stands for. Oh, Stand Against Trafficking. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, that's always been a big theme for me, and it kind of fits what you're talking about, about the safe harbor, is from the beginnings, when I was up here in Northern Virginia, I've always believed that financial institutions would benefit themselves and their community by doing more outreach and partnering with each other, partnering with law enforcement, partnering with private organizations. Um, It's easy to let the lawyers, um, and you know, golly, the lawyers are just the source of all evil. I think we can agree with that, right? (laughs) But you know, we can let the lawyers scare you away from doing the right thing and doing the right thing for your customers and your community. Um, by by working in uh, in partnerships and working in organizations and having bank security organizations and sharing information and getting training, um, and you know like under the safe harbor, you know when they have information about criminal activity, reaching out and and letting law enforcement know not just through the SAR process, but you know working with law enforcement in individual cases. Well, hold that thought because yeah. I'm a firm believer that uh, the we the AML mm-hmm. community actually does work together quite. Robustly, and everything can be improved. Sure. But let's take a quick break and yeah. we'll come back. I want to talk about the safe harbor and some more thoughts about private yeah. public partnership. Absolutely. So, again, one of the reasons, Elliot, that I wanted to talk to you was um, after looking, reading your article, and, and obviously knowing all the work you've done mm-hmm. with law enforcement. I thought it was important because I we both know Steve Gerdak, and sure. Steve's always sort of complaining that mm-hmm. um, the banks. Not that they could do more, because I think he's a firm yeah. believer that there's a strong partnership. Oh, yeah. but, but sometimes they're reluctant for what mm-hmm. you mentioned before the break, and that is they get legal opinions mm-hmm. or legal cautions that mm-hmm. perhaps prevent them from being a little mm-hmm. more proactive. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I think he's, he's made a fair point to me and probably to many others. Mm-hmm. And, and I did work for a large uh, financial institution for a mm-hmm. number of years. And I knew that when law enforcement would reach out mm-hmm. um, with a subpoena or a search warrant, mm-hmm. most of the time, at least then, it was sort of handled administratively. Mm-hmm. So the people that were responding didn't understand the 
urgency. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Sure. So for them, it was okay. I get these records. Okay. Yeah. Whereas your colleagues mm -hmm. rightly wanted things sooner versus later, which mm -hmm. made perfect sense. Or they would just, or they would keep coming back and asking additional questions, and I think Steve and his colleagues would get frustrated. And mm -hmm. again, don't blame them at all. Yeah. So uh, talk a bit about that, and, and then yeah. we'll as I say we'll eventually get to the safe harbor. Right, but right. let's talk about it from a practical standpoint. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience or experience of your colleagues mm -hmm. about? Let's talk about reaching out. Mm -hmm. Just forget about the safe harbor for a second. Reaching out to the financial institution mm -hmm. first. Maybe informally, right? And then, how does that work? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, formally, when it's search warrant subpoenas, what are mm -hmm. the pros and cons of all that? So let's start off with informally. When can, in your view, mm -hmm. um, a law enforcement official or somebody working with the prosecutor's office right. reach out to a financial institution on an ongoing investigation mm -hmm. and ask questions? That's a great question, and I, I think a good way to start about it, to think about it, is. You know, if you're listening to this as a financial professional, I think you have sort of an understanding of your own organization that's a natural understanding. You understand is you know how it's organized, and there's a certain person you call, and you would never call this person or whatever, because um, it's where you go to work every day. And on the other hand, probably the police department is completely opaque to you. You have no idea how it's organized. Um, I would always joke around. I would say to people, "How many people? How many law enforcement officers do you think are working in our community at any one time? You know, how many officers are out in the street?" And I would always get these crazy numbers that had no relationship to reality because right. we don't understand how each other work. And so, if you take a prosecutor who, again, has just graduated law school a few years ago, you put them in an office, you train them, they go to court, they do DUIs and suspended licenses, and people punching each other at a bar, and then you say, "Okay, now you have this case, and it's involving a financial fraud of some kind." And the person says, all right, well, I guess I need to get the bank records. And so they just sit there and they say, well, I have, how do I get the bank right. records? Sure. And so just that very basic uh, uh, need, you know, they sort of say, well, you know, I have a couple of different options. I guess one would just be to, to call up the local bank, right, and say, hey, I need these records, or hey, I'm going to send a subpoena. Who do I call? Mm -hmm. You know, so they might call, they might get a name, they might not get a name. And then, of course, somebody at the bank, they don't, it's not as if they have a lawyer in the institution. Right, so the bank course. responds with whatever mythology or understanding they have of what the law is. And they think, well, this is a legal request. And somebody's asking for a name. And I better call corporate. So I'm not going to give you a name. I'm not going to give you anything. Or my name is Mary. And I'm not going to give you anything else. Sure. And the prosecutor's accustomed to getting what they want and accustomed to the fact that I have orders from the court that you have to be complied with. So they get angry. So they start screaming and yelling. And the person at the bank goes, well, I'm not going to put up with you yelling at me. I don't need this. You know, so they start. And then by the time you're done, you have this screaming, you know, screaming fight. People are hanging up on each other. Right. And that's usually when I get called. You know, or, and this will happen with law enforcement just as much. Mm -hmm. um, that law enforcement, somebody will call and say, I just got in the screaming match. This is outrageous. The bank won't give me these records. And I'll say, well, let's, let's dial it back a little bit. Let's talk about what did you actually ask? Who are you asking? What did you send them? And, and so on. And, and in Virginia, we generally speaking have two ways to get records from a bank. We have a subpoena route and we have a search warrant route. Um, and the search warrant route, um, you'll find that some people like doing the search warrant route and some people like doing the subpoena route. And the standard is more or less the same um, uh, under the law. But one is signed by a judge and one is signed by a magistrate, which is kind of like a judge. Right. Um, and again, you find so often that I think that people who are writing these search warrants and writing these subpoenas have in their mind what they 
think they want. They have no training in what is it, what is it, what does the bank call these records? What is it, what does a bank actually have? You know, I just want to have all of the records. And so if you get a record, you know, if you get a subpoena that says, I want all records, the bank's going to say, well, that's crazy. I can't give you, you have to tell me what you want. All records is not helpful. And so again, maybe they just get statements back and then they get frustrated and angry and the screaming matches start again. So is that where you would come in in your training beforehand by saying, look guys and gals, when you need records, be much more specific than you think you need to be. You're not right. gonna lose critical data necessarily, but if you're looking for a transactional uh, history and it's basically wires or what have you, you should narrow or timing narrow it down. So you're sure. so you're you're getting called after there's been the screaming matches. Right. So that's when you wanna, as you say, dial it back and narrow right. it. But I assume then during your initial training, somebody that's right in the prosecutor's office day one, you're saying, right. look, bank records very important. Right. But be be more circumspect about what you're asking for, right? Sure. And so we try to share with law enforcement, with prosecutors, templates and examples and lists and so on. We try to give that and make that available to prosecutors. We, you know, unfortunately, we're also, we're always scrambling to train prosecutors on everything we can train, you know, everything from human trafficking to DUI, sure. fatalities and so on. So, but along that way, we, we try to give that resource to them to let them, to let them have that. Um, it's very similar to the problem that we have, honestly, with um, electronic service providers. You know, people trying to get information from Apple and Facebook and oh, Twitter and so on. I imagine that'd be even harder. It's even more difficult, <laughs> yeah. and it's but it's almost exactly the same problem right. because you have what is it that Facebook has? What do they call the records? What do they call this kind of document? How do I get it? Who do I call at Facebook? Um, Facebook won't give me the records. Screaming matches and so on and so forth, and then I got a call. You know, um, a very similar problem because again, you have the same issue. Uh, what do I need to ask for? How do I need to ask for it? And whom do I need to ask? So you you said earlier that you have an encyclopedia online. Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah. So I assume that, that that sort of stuff is in there. So somebody yes. that starts their job, if their office is paying attention, yes. they're saying, oh, by the way, as you're researching mm -hmm. things, look at this too. This is a resource, and it, it, that description. Um, a process would be in there. Exactly yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I wrote, and that's something, but it's only recent. I mean, I, I wrote that section probably two or three years ago. Okay. So until two or three years ago, that general resource wasn't out there. Um, yeah. All right, let's 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 shift gears to the, to the sure. Civil Safe Harbor. So yeah. the Civil Safe Harbor craft in the early 90s mm -hmm. was designed to give, again, financial institutions protection from civil liability. Basically, so you would win law, you could always get sued, but you mm -hmm. would win lawsuits against um, those that you filed on because um, of what, whatever reason. So either it's a required form, which at that time, the SAR wasn't even created. It was something mm -hmm. called a criminal referral form or a CTR. Those are mm -hmm. sort of formal uh, reports. The old CTR used to have a box on it that said suspicious transaction. So you'd fill out a $12,000 transaction and the top was a box. You could also check it as suspicious. They, <laughs> okay. got, rid of, they got rid of that. But so that, so uh -huh. when we were tasked with crafting something that would mm -hmm. continue to encourage filing, mm -hmm. the Civil Safe Harbor concept for, from the financial perspective was protect us if we're doing this filing, mm -hmm. whether it's required or not. And when it, being not required, the thought process was you want the financial sector to be proactive. Right. If you don't give them that protection, then going back to your mm -hmm. anecdotal uh, point before, is mm -hmm. that the lawyers will say, let's err on the side of sure. caution, right. yeah. being, being very cautious. 
So the other part of this, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but we've mm-hmm. talked about this on, Earl, on other podcasts. Mm-hmm. There, w- there was language, actually the first iteration of the bill was in the 90s, in 1990, passed in 92. Um, but in the first iteration, it was if the filing was done in good faith. Yeah. And we felt that that was going to be problematic. Sure. Not because good faith isn't a good thing to do. Right. Because you don't want to be just filing mm-hmm. either defensively or out of spite, any mm-hmm. of that sort of thing. Sure. But if you had to litigate every, t- if you were potentially going to be litigated every time mm-hmm. you filed because someone claimed that you weren't doing mm-hmm. the filing in good faith. And let's face it, a lot of people you're filing SARS on, mm-hmm. not the best people in the no, world. Not, you know? not, so, not people who are themselves acting in good yeah, faith, right? Yeah. Occasionally yeah. it could be. But mm-hmm. so, um, Congress agreed and mm-hmm. struck the good faith limitation uh, between when it went into conference before mm-hmm. final passage. So that becomes enacted. Um, number of cases over time. Bottom line is it's still robust. It mm-hmm. still exists. Uh, didn't ha- didn't have in this recent go round with the House, fortunately. Mm-hmm. But there had been some rumblings in the past couple mm-hmm. of years that because of some court cases, mm-hmm. people wanted to reopen that statute, mm-hmm. which would be horrific would be yeah, in my view. Very bad. But from your from mm-hmm. your uh, point of view as a user mm-hmm. or a beneficiary of the mm-hmm. statute, and talk let's talk a bit about what you wrote about. Give us some practical mm-hmm. do's and don'ts regarding. The civil safe harbor uh, that you've seen, uh, both you know, obviously as you crafted the article, but mm-hmm. from your colleagues, uh, you know, the the prosecutorial uh, colleagues mm-hmm. over time. Yeah, I mean, it's what I always kind of start out with when I talk to banks is, you know, I imagine, you know, imagine a bank robber, you know, imagine somebody walking in, and they stick up your teller, and they walk out with a bag of cash, and the police show up, and they say, um, hey, you know, what happened? And you tell them, well, I can't tell you anything until you get me a you know, grand jury subpoena and you, you know, bring us into grand jury. Otherwise, everything that happens in here is private. Right. You know, and, and of course, that's ridiculous. Um, and you're not helping your customers. You're not having your institution that way. Um, and I don't think there's any bank that would do that. Um, but when somebody comes in and defrauds you, your institution, it's the same thing. So, you know, for example, if, some, if you have a teller who's embezzling from you, right. generally speaking, institutions, again, don't have any trouble saying, hey, I had this teller in here, and um, she opened up her drawer, and she took money out, and she walked away, and it's on video. And um, again, that's records that happened to you, and you're happy to tell law enforcement about it. Um, I try to get people to think about it that way and then say, okay, so why is it different when you have an elder fraud situation where you have a customer of yours who's been a long-term customer, who's being exploited by someone, your teller knows because, let's face it, nobody knows that customer better than your tellers do. And they're telling you this person is a victim of a crime they're being stolen from. And we can file some paperwork with FinCEN, and it'll go up to FinCEN, and it'll get reported, and it'll go to this reporting system, and then hopefully somebody's reading it somewhere at IRS or something, and it's going to trickle down. But, you know, why are we letting our customer be the victim of this crime in front of us every time that, you know, they're coming in week after week, depleting their account? Um, You know, this may be somebody who's a long-lost cousin, or is just a tree worker, or some roofer or something who's taking them from this money. Why are we letting this happen to our customer and to our institution? Why are we letting ourselves be a tool of this um, without picking up the phone and calling the police? And the good institutions will do that. You know, pick up the phone and say, hey, look, you need to know this or call Adult Protective Services, which in Virginia is an option. Um, And I don't know about the rest of the country, but I know in Virginia it's an option to call Adult Protective Services and say, hey, look, you guys need to check out 
um, what's going on with Mrs. Smith because I think she's being exploited. Um, and, and fortunately, that's where that safe harbor, that 3403 safe harbor comes in and, and it reinforces that your efforts as an institution to protect your customer, to report this to crime, to law enforcement, get that protection that you were talking about. And it's so important, I think, that it's that you know that good faith uh, issue. I find to be very interesting because, of course, you know, if it required, if the statute required good faith, what that really would mean is that you are only protected from lawsuit, you know, if you are able to prove that the that your amount of evidence was a sufficient amount of evidence. And whenever you have a situation like that, what you're really saying to the plaintiff's bar is, go ahead and sue us and we'll you know, have a fight in court and right. we'll have to settle it. And by taking that out and saying, look, just if you, need, if you think you need to call law enforcement, pick up the phone and call law enforcement, let them know. The good institutions that we've worked with before, I mean, I'm not saying they're bad institutions, but the institutions who were aggressive about this before, um, uh, we've always been thankful because there's, you don't, Typically speaking, and I'm, I'll pick up my Ms. Smith, Mrs. Smith, the elder fraud victim, you're not going to find out about that crime in the reality of it is you're not going to find out about that crime until Mrs. Smith has passed away and her relatives sit down with the attorney and the executor of the okay. estate and Mrs. Smith's entire account has been emptied um, and all of her silver has been pawned and her house has a you know reverse mortgage on it. Um, and everything, she's lost everything that she's ever owned. Everything she meant to leave to her family, her jewelry, everything is gone. Right. And that's when you find out that the bank is on the front line there uh, protecting that customer and letting us know. We're, we're always thankful for that. So uh, the protection is clear whether it's a formal requirement or a what I'm calling a proactive requirement. Mm -hmm. As you just mentioned, elder abuse is a good example. While the hope is, is the bank will file a SAR on that. Sure. You want to you be more uh, nimble in, in, mm -hmm. in real time. What about the situation where someone in law enforcement is investigating some activity? There's no SAR yet from the bank, no contact yet for the bank, and they're calling the bank. How does, in your view, how does the safe harbor apply or not? That's a great question. And... Fortunately, there's some good cases on that. Um, there's cases out of the Eastern District of New York, um, out of Illinois, out of Ohio. Um, there's a uh, case called Giannone versus Bank of America that's probably the most you know, cited one recently. It's, it's a 2011 case. And what they generally say is, um, is that just because law enforcement has initiated that contact um, doesn't mean that I don't still get the safe harbor. The way I have read those cases and what I generally tell financial service companies when I teach the safe harbor is um, have the officer explain to you why it is that the officer believes the criminal activity is there and if you feel that there is if you agree with that officer that there's a reasonable basis to think the criminal activity is going on um, why is that different than your teller telling you mm -hmm. that you know Mrs. Smith is being exploited if you get a call from law enforcement they say hey look we need to look at these records well, tell me why. What do you think is going on? Well, we have this lady, Mrs. Smith, and um, her, she, her, she's cut off all rel contact with her relatives. Um, her relatives you know, found out that her assets are being depleted. There's this guy. He shows up. He takes all of her money. You know, her checks. So now you look at it and you say, well, I agree. That's a bad situation. 
um, I'm going to disclose these records to you. That's what that safe harbor is there to do. Well, let me softly push back because I don't disagree yeah. with your mm -hmm. analysis, but it would seem to me that mm -hmm. it would be depend dependent upon the banker, he or she, right. taking what you've just told me and going right. back and seeing, yes, that's correct. In other words, what you don't want is right. the prosecutor, not that they would ever do this, but right. that a prosecutor says all these things occurred and you say, yeah, that's terrible. I'm going to give you the records. Right. They should go in and review the records. Yes. And we're not adding a requirement, by the way, to, to get the safe harbor. So no. that's not my point. Right. But, for, but if you're asking me as a lawyer, I would say, sounds like we should work with them. Right. Let's do it quickly. Let's pull the records ourselves. And if it seems pretty close to what they've said, right. and, and, and obviously you've got to make right. that analysis, versus just saying, oh, Elliot wants it, so just come on in and get them. And, and let me say why I think I, I think you're you're 100 right. I, I totally agree with you about that. Um, I train in financial services, but I also train on electronic evidence, mm -hmm. and I train on asset forfeiture and money laundering. And I will tell you from my experience in the field of electronic evidence and asset forfeiture and money laundering, if you abuse and if law enforcement abuses, if we as a society abuse the protections and the tools that we have available to us in a way that the public views as being abusive to their privacy or their um, civil liberties, that tomorrow these tools and these avenues will be gone. And I've experienced that in asset forfeiture over my career, and I've experienced that in electronic evidence over my career, where we have followed all the rules and somebody somewhere else has decided the rules don't apply to, or you know, maybe not the rules don't apply to me, but I'm going to push this to the limit. I'm going to take advantage of this to my own, and 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 suddenly now it's ruined for everybody. It's interesting. I did a podcast with Steph Casella, who I'm oh, sure, sure, yeah, sure yeah, you know, yeah. and, and one of the questions I asked Steph was given some of the media focus mm -hmm. on forfeiture, mm -hmm. and he made it, uh, as he would, mm -hmm. very clear distinction between the aberrations, yeah. you know, somebody getting pulled over in a mm -hmm. car that's going to buy some shrubbery right, right, right. and taking their cash sure. versus, you know, the, the, the main use of, mm -hmm. the, of the forfeiture law. So I think mm -hmm. that makes sense. So I, I've kept you a long time, but mm -hmm. I, I, di I didn't want to uh, uh, miss asking you about mm -hmm. some other parts of the SAR issue. As you just said, you're right. We could, we, the AML community, could lose this protection mm -hmm. if there are uh, issues. And yeah. one of the issues we've seen recently has been questions about the confidentiality mm -hmm. of SARS, mm -hmm. whether it's um, Avenatti saying mm -hmm. release the SARS, which mm -hmm. was one of the one of the many dumb things he did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's hard to make a list. <laughs> right. To, uh, sadly, the mm -hmm. FinCEN employee who absconded mm -hmm. with a thumb drive with SAR data mm -hmm. a short time ago, which mm -hmm. really scares the community because, sure. you know, it's always been uh, held to the highest level of protection that mm -hmm. SARS can't be disclosed, the fact that you filed them, mm -hmm. obviously the documents themselves, mm -hmm. and to have the agency, and I'm not picking on them because yeah. for the most part they've had really strong security, sure. no yeah. question about it. Right. But when something like that happens, mm -hmm. you could see people on sort of the other side, mm -hmm. I mean, not even the political other side, people right. saying, we don't like the fact mm -hmm. that the private sector mm -hmm. can file a report on me or mm -hmm. my company and we don't know anything about it. We don't know what went into it yeah. and all of that. And so this is where your fear becomes real. If mm -hmm. people that maybe don't care that much about the SAR process mm -hmm. say, you mean they go in the system and they're never expunged, mm -hmm. which we both know is true. Mm -hmm. Those are mm -hmm. never, SARS mm -hmm. were created in a 98, 99 time mm -hmm. frame around there. 
you f filed in 2000 yeah. against you, it's mm -hmm. still in the system. Sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. So, and it could be a very, at that mm -hmm. point, a very innocuous mm -hmm. activity that the bank sure. yeah. sincerely believed was a problem. Yeah. So, uh, to that point, when you're training mm -hmm. prosecutors in law enforcement about the civil safe harbor, but you're also yeah. talking about the propriety of the SARS, sure. what do you emphasize? We always start and end with the confidentiality of SARS, and we usually pepper in the middle the confidentiality of SARS. Um, I ran a SAR task force for a number of years, okay. and you know it was always emphasized the beginning and the end. And we would you know talk about when I was sending an email about a meeting, I would always say, and remember the confidentiality of this is is, is paramount um, because it only takes. You know, a couple of people messing this up for everybody, uh, to, for us to to lose those, um, to lose those abilities. I will tell you, you know, too. I, I and, and this isn't something that's a thrust from my agency in particular, but um, the other experience I've had from working in the electronic evidence field too is that sometimes we get so caught up in the confidentiality of the technique itself mm -hmm. that we refuse to talk to the public about and help the public understand about what it is that we're actually doing. And throughout most of my career, I was very protective of, of tools and tactics and how we did things. I never wanted to talk about it. And I think I've come to the view over time that that hurt us as investigators and people on the front line of financial fraud. And, and let me give an example of what I mean. I mean, when it came to um, cell phones, uh, law enforcement over time developed the ability to use uh, devices, electronics, to, 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 to locate a phone. So if they had a, a person who was a fugitive from justice or shot a police officer or something, they developed the ability to, to locate that particular phone. And they were secretive to the point of, in, in a couple of cases, refusing to testify about it in court or pretending it didn't exist in court and getting in trouble and having contempt issues and so on. Ultimately, the existence of the, of the technology became public, but when it did, it became public with other people reporting about it and talking about it without really understanding what it did. Mm -hmm. And so members of the public came to believe that law enforcement had the ability to, without a warrant, secretly listen to your conversations. And law enforcement was keeping track of and doing these dragnets, which is none of it is true. Right. But what else was there to the public to believe in the mythology because law enforcement wouldn't talk about it? And so I, I, I have reluctantly come to the view over time that when we're completely unwilling to engage with the public about why what we do is important and how what we do is we follow the rules, we're respectful of the rules, we take the rules seriously, and we always work hard to stay at what Steve Gerdak always talks about, stay at the high ground, always take the high ground. Right. Um, I don't think we help ourselves, but if we were willing to get out in front, and you, of course you are somebody who's a great example of someone who does this, who gets out there and talks, you know, and, and engages and says, you know, we're, this is how we do it, and we do it right, and we should be proud of how we do it right. I think we're helping ourselves out in the long term so that when there are, and there's going to be people who, you know, screw it up, um, the public understands uh, what the program is and what its parameters are. You know, that's so important now, especially with what's going on in Washington regarding attacks on federal law enforcement. Uh, and sadly, people don't spend the time to try to understand, whether it's false comments about the FISA court process, mm -hmm. 
whether it's comments about our good colleagues at the FBI. Mm-hmm. I mean, the constant hammering of, of that becomes uh, so clear. That's why I say there's, there's certainly some fear mm-hmm. that the SAR process gets opened up. The, the legislation, which we're obviously not going into detail about now, mm-hmm. but the legislation that, that passed the uh, House Committee last mm-hmm. week has, it, has a number of provisions in there mm-hmm. where law enforcement uh, is encouraged to do or, or there'll be required studies mm-hmm. on the value of BSA data, mm-hmm. which I think they need to embrace that and sure. explain it and mm-hmm. how it's used. And yeah. there's actually some provisions in there that could result in some changes in the SAR filing and mm-hmm. maybe part of it could be positive. They're actually talking about mm-hmm. a shorter SAR for structuring, mm-hmm. so which I think a lot of people would say, sure. yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But I think Things like thresholds mm-hmm. and eliminating boxes. Mm-hmm. We could we could talk another hour mm-hmm. about the value uh, of boxes versus not having them, sure, narratives yeah. and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the bottom line is, I mm-hmm. obviously 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. I want to get you out of here on this. Yeah. Uh, given all that you have done, mm-hmm. um, what would be your uh, advice? You're coming in to teach a mm-hmm. class of financial executives. Mm-hmm on AML, yeah. Uh, obviously maybe soup to nuts, maybe an advanced mm-hmm. class because people sure. have a background. What would be the thing you would try to leave them with? You'd leave them with a lot, right. but if you focus on one or two things, what would you yeah. want to leave them with? I always kind of start and end with know your audience. And by that I mean, if you're a financial professional and you're in AML world and you want to talk to law enforcement, know how to talk to them in a way that they'll understand. And by that I mean recognize that they don't speak your language. They don't know necessarily what your words mean. You know, and when you talk to law enforcement, recognize that um, there is no one entity called law enforcement in anywhere in the United States. We have a funny system. I teach, um, for example, I work with, the, um, with, with money laundering and prosecutors from Japan. And they came and I worked with them and helped them understand the American system um, during some studies that they were doing with the Japanese Department of Justice. And they were so fascinated because our system is upside down to them. You know, you have Mary Smith, who's the I made up person who's getting exploited as elder fraud. Right. What is law enforcement? What does it mean to call, do I call the FBI? Do I call the Secret Service? Do I call the police department? Do I call the sheriff's department? Do I call, and then when I do, do I pick up the phone and just call 911? Do I call the front desk? Who do I talk to? Um, that's going to be different depending on where you are. And so to know your audience, I think, really means to harness the power of your tellers who know, who probably know your customers and know your communities better than anyone. So um, if you want to do the right thing and you want to reach out, you know, use those local tools, those local tellers to get to know your law enforcement community. Um, join associations and so on, and that's the best way to, to do it right. Yeah, that sounds good. But obviously, the challenge going forward is people that don't come into the banks anymore. So we got to yeah. figure that out as well. But, well, you're right. You're right. But, yeah. But that you know, certainly mm-hmm. in the sort of the community bank setting, that makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. Sure. We both have done a lot mm-hmm. of uh, speaking and training around the mm-hmm. country, and that's mm-hmm. still more the case than it's mm-hmm. not. But yeah. You know, it's but you're just, right, it's going to change. It's, it's going to change. Yeah. Um, Elliot, thanks for everything you're yeah. working on. Really appreciate it. And yeah. thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, fun. it was fun. Thank you. I want to thank Elliot Casey, uh, the staff attorney for the Virginia Commonwealth's uh, Attorney Service, Services Council, for uh, an excellent explanation of the training that goes into uh, prosecutors in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but also similar programs, obviously, around around the country. I think 
for us in the AML community, we don't always appreciate what the law enforcement side does to stay up to speed with all the issues that we grapple with. And it's great to know that they have somebody like Elliot that spends time explaining, as, as he did during the interview, explaining to new prosecutors and those that obviously may not be experts in financial crime all the elements that they need so they can have uh, successful cases and strong investigations. The other part of the interview, obviously, that's important to all of us is the continued use of the civil safe harbor in under federal law in the United States. As we all know, that's 31 CFR 103.18 is the reg, and the statute is a 31 USC 5318. Uh, Elliot also, as we mentioned, wrote an article for A Camps Today in the December uh, 2018, February 2019 edition, where he does uh, talk at length about the importance of not only knowing your customer, but knowing your audience and keeping law enforcement apprised. Um, reading from the last part of his article, he says this, fear and uncertainty can prevent lawful disclosures and undermine the partnership between law enforcement and financial institutions. But he says, if financial institutions can, then perhaps more financial institutions should initiate contact with law enforcement to stop criminal activity. I, I thought that um, both the article and you know his obvious passion and commitment to making sure there is this strong private-public partnership is so important for us to recognize. Um, again, I want to thank Elliot. Lengthy interview, obviously, but there were so many things I wanted to hear about uh, because, uh, frankly, I knew he was out there and people like him, but I also thought it was really important for you to hear the scope of all the work that goes into our partners in law enforcement. So I think that's uh, pretty important for us to know. And again, talking about that civil safe harbor under federal law, it's really important for those of us that advise or do the filing of suspicious activity reports that we understand the cases, we understand the scope, uh, because as AML reform continues to move through the Congress, there, uh, there could be some uh, continued reviews of this safe harbor, which is hopefully we made clear we will want it to stay as it is. Um, so once again, um, I want to thank Elliot Casey. Really, uh, I also want to thank Steve Gerdak, who connected me with Elliot and said it would really make a lot of sense for the AML community to hear from Elliot and all the great work that he's done. So thanks again for listening. This is John Byrne for AML Conversations, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>